Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where facts are stubborn things. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week, we are covering part one of HBO's 2008 miniseries, John Adams. Hi, Patreon! <laughs> Hi, little onions! <laughs> Welcome to Ross Does the American Revolution Through the Eyes of HBO's John Adams. <laughs> Guys, I am in my element today. Yeah, guys, if you just came over from the introductory episode, <laughs> welcome back. I'm glad you're still here. Thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> guys, we're not going to do a lot of uh, inf opening information today, because obviously y'all are on the Patreon. You already know everything. And there's 500 minutes of content to cover. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to keep you guys here forever, so... I'm going to play the trailer for the miniseries, and then when we come back, Ross is going to Ross is gonna combust. Absolutely, I am. <laughs> Are you kidding? pretty sure. My father was a shoemaker. My mother could not read. We New England men are not fit for the times. What have we seen of the world beyond Boston? What have we seen? I fear we don't know what we do. I sometimes think we may be heading to a complete and irrevocable independence. Ma! Those are guns, Mama. I pray they are. Massachusetts is in a state of open rebellion. It is no small thing to build a new world, gentlemen. A good diplomat, Mr. Adams, speaks softly. I will not voluntarily put on the chains of France while I am struggling to throw off those of Great Britain. To the revolution. War has been this administration's policy from the beginning. Is it your purpose to destroy everything we've accomplished? You're trampling on the Constitution. I am no man's puppet. We are in the very midst of revolution. This is a time for choosing sides. They are needed in the Congress. You are needed here, John. If I were a man, I would be in the field of action. The British are marching on convoy! Come back to me, John. Okay. Liberty will reign! America. So obviously, this is HBO Films, this is Playtone, this is Tom Hooper, this is Gemma Jackson, this is Kirk Ellis. We have a wonderful team with us today. Part one is called Join or Die. Yeah! This covers the years of John Adams' life between 1770 and 1774. So really from the time that he's 35 to 40, around that area. Obviously, we're going to do a little We've Got Names for you, and we're just going to, every installment that we go through after this, we're just going to add to whoever new shows up yeah, for we, We've Got Names. We're uh, not going to go through it every time. No, absolutely not. Obviously, there are characters in the first part that will be in every part. So, just to start us off, guys, please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, Mr. Paul Giamatti, who is portraying the second president of the United States, John Adams, today. You guys might not remember because he had such a small role, but he, yeah. he was with us when we covered My Best Friend's Wedding. Yeah, he's a hotel guy who's trying to console Julia Roberts. Who bums the cigarette from her. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, poor little Paul Giamatti. You'll know Paul Giamatti from favorites like Big Fat Liar. <laughs> 
The Truman Show yes. with Laura Linney. That's right. And Jim Carrey. Your token favorite, uh, The Lady in the Water. Oh my God, what is wrong with me? <laughs> I do love Lady in the Water, but it's so bad. It is really it's bad. It's so hokey, I can't. <laughs> But I do love M. Night. Uh, you'll know him from things like 12 Years a Slave, Planet of the Apes, San Andreas. He's in, he's the chauffeur in Saving Mr. Banks. Yes, he is. I love that. I just love Paul Giamatti. He's like one of my favorite character act character actor Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Can he be the male equivalent to character actors Margot Martindale? Sure. <laughs> I, lo- I love Paul Giamatti. And his portrayal of John Adams is so down to earth. He really studied the man, the, the, the accent. Yeah. Obviously, we have no idea today what these characters from the 18th century sounded like, but I just would love to think that how Paul Giamatti plays it is exactly how he was. Old, befuddled, belligerent John Adams, (laughs) who was just a great political thinker, a great writer. If you're ever interested in politics or government or the law... Read yourself some John Adams. Like, it is astounding reading. Please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming. Oh, my babe, my wife, my girly Friday, <laughs> Ms. Laura Linney. My God, I wonder if Laura Linney is on Cameo, because if I could get her to do a video for you. I would just, Carrie, <laughs> I could die happy. I love Laura Linney. I know you think my love for her is overrated, but, <laughs> and maybe it is a little bit, but I just think she's an amazing actress. I think she really understands method and really uses it to perfect a performance. Like, she was, of course, with us on Kicking and Streaming before when we did Driving Lessons for Birthday Month a couple of years ago. I actually picked that performance as Laura Marshall for Top 10 Female Performances, which, again, we should redo. (laughs) You want to redo your list? There are other things to consider, you know what I mean? (laughs) Let's do another Top 10. And, of course, Laura Linney is playing the wonderful, the amazing Abigail Smith-Adams. Guys, Ross is here for the John. I am here for the Abby. Oh, my God. Like, what What a actually true American love story. Yeah. The most powerful true American love story. Jabigail forever. Jabigail. <laughs> Short King energy. Short, Short King, King energy. energy. Short King energy. Folks, please welcome to Kicking and Streaming, Mr. Danny Houston, brother of Angelica Houston. We've talked about him a couple of times on the show, but only because he's Angelica Houston's brother. Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Mm-hmm. He's the Axeman in FX's American Horror Story Season 3. I am inexplicably attracted to him for some reason. You just want to be Jessica Lang in that season anyway. You want to be Fiona Good. <laughs> Angel has fallen. He was in Freak Show, too. Yeah, he was. Um... He was in Wonder Woman. You do love Wonder Woman. I do love me a Wonder Woman movie. He is portraying John Adams' cousin, the famous Sam Adams. Like the beer. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of you will be familiar with Sam Adams, just not from a historical point of view. Sam Adams was a leader in the Sons of Liberty. Oh, yeah. in In the late 18th century. We've got Justin Thoreau here with us this on Kicking and Streaming. He's playing John Hancock in this installment. The man for whom our home county is named had the biggest friggin' signature on the Declaration of Independence. We also have Richie Coster portraying Captain Preston, the captain of the Redcoats who fired on townspeople during the Boston Massacre. Indeed. I only wanted to mention him because I recognized him. He's in The Dark Knight. 
he's one of the tough guys that Joker gets involved with when he tries to take over Gotham. Amazing. I, it is really cool. I was like, oh, wow, these are two very different projects. We've also got Guy Henry. He's portraying Jonathan Sewell, who was the Massachusetts Attorney General at the time that the unrest in Massachusetts began. I misidentified him as Jefferson through the whole episode before I realized it wasn't Jefferson. You actually have seen him before, you just don't know. Uh-oh. He's pious thickness in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Oh! The puppet minister of magic installed by Voldemort. Oh, okay. Uh-huh, yeah. We've got Brennan Brown as Robert Treat Payne. And we've got Tom Beckett as Elbridge Gary as well. They will factor in here at the end of the episode. <sighs> Carrie? <laughs> I know. You're ready to start. <laughs> I'm so ready. You've been ready for three years. I, I, he, it's coming. Yeah, I know. And guys, if I just seem to disappear, it's because Ross is in his element. He's going to be doing so much of this with no notes. Like, he's just, he, Ross is the, really the resident expert today, and I'm just, I'm gonna let him do his thing. We have to first talk about this theme. Rob Lane, composer for HBO's John Adams, let's go out sometime. Oh, no, yeah, this does make you feel a certain kind of way, because it's all of these overlapping translucent shots of all these flags that existed in early colonial times, like famously the flag of the snake that says join or die on it. And the snake's cut up into 13 different sections to represent the 13 colonies. And you may be wondering, why the snake? It's because the snake is always poised to strike. Oh, okay. Yeah, power of the people and shit. (laughs) All right, all right. It's just like, oh, and like just all of the strings and all of the horns and it just like, it just fucking, it surmounts into that beautiful break into the main flag. especially love the flags that say liberty or death and i also love the flag that says appeal to heaven with the pine tree on it yeah the pine tree was a symbol of peace it was actually a flag used by people who didn't want to be on either side of this conflict they're like we are switzerland leave us alone we're just people (laughs) we're trying to live and it makes me so sad to think about all these great symbols of the revolution being used by the extreme right faction of this country nowadays. and But that's also symptomatic of how complicated our founding was. but And how romanticized it is for us. As always, when we, I love the shot as we pan out of the theme on every episode. We're in Boston. 1770. It is winter. Yeah, no, Boston winters, uh, the, the ground was frozen up to six feet under in March. Like, you couldn't even bury people if they died. John Adams, who is a lawyer who spends half his time at his farm in Braintree, Massachusetts, and the wintertime living in the city in Boston. They have a house on, uh, I think it's Kilby Street. <laughs> the fact 
fact that you even know the name of the street. It's right next to the old state house. Yeah. It's to State House Square, which you'll see why that's relevant in a second. But he's coming back from a case that he's just litigated somewhere out west, and it did not go well for him. It did not go in his favor. Some struggle between neighbors where one guy thought another guy's horse had trampled his crops, and John didn't win. He, he did not win. He's coming back into town, and we see this British soldier standing guard in State House Square in Boston. And these young men are mocking him. They're calling him a lobster. Because of the red coat. Because of the red coat, yes. And then they start throwing shards of ice at him as John is riding by. He's just like ignoring it like you do when there's violent shit going down in the street in America. You just eyes down, eyes down, keep walking, don't become a part of it. God. He he brings his horse in to his stable around back and then, oh, hi, babe. (laughs) Who pops up? Abigail Adams. Looking fine, actually looking rather dirty and worn, but that was Abigail Adams, you know what I mean? That was everybody back then. He lost. I did. I could tell. I just said it your shoulders. My client alleged. You've got him figured out. You don't even have to say anything. Their relationship's almost telepathic. That's beautiful to me. When they come inside the house and... John Adams literally just takes off his hair. Yeah, no. It's a wig. Men in these times were like drag queens. We got to wear four layers and have wigs. like. And like they're never on, right? It's no. absolutely hilarious. It was a symbol of status. Yeah. If you had money, you wore a nice piece of hair <laughs> when you were a man. A you toupee. Know? <laughs> Ross, talk about John's family as it currently exists. So in 1770, he'd had two children by that point. He's got, of course, his el- their eldest child was Abigail Amelia Adams, who they res- affectionately called Nabby. I wrote that. I was like, what kind of name is Nabby? I don't know, but she's their eldest. Realistically, she's probably about five or six in the actual timeline, but she looks a little bit older. I've actually seen that actress on SVU before. Of course you fucking have. <laughs> She played like a street kid who was brutally murdered, but that's neither here nor there. We've also got, of course, John Quincy Adams, who would grow up to become the sixth president of the United States. (laughs) I just have John (laughs) 2.0. No, like, I do love John Quincy, though. Abigail's like, you know, did you go to the farm? Because, like, I need you to keep tabs on that shit while I'm here. And he's trying to tell her something, and then they start hearing a bell. In the distance, and people shouting about a fire. No, I have ding, 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 ding. It's a fire. Back in those days, if you lived in town, you were a volunteer firefighter, right? Like, there were no fire departments. <laughs> Thank you very much, Franklin. John Adams runs out of the house with a pail, and he goes up to this pump, this street pump, but it's completely frozen over because it's winter and it's March, and he can't get anything out of it, and then he hears gunfire. Oh, my God. From State House Square. There's so much happening all at once. Like, we completely forget about the fire. He runs down the alley towards State House Square towards the fire. And all these people run towards him out of the alley. And when he comes into State House Square, it's just 
smoke from all the muskets. This is the Boston Massacre. This is March 5th, 1770. All those boys and men who were mocking the Redcoats. They started a riot. That allegedly. (laughs) Yeah, they started a riot that then supposedly caused the British soldiers to fire upon them. There were several people injured, but five of them were killed. Yeah, I have all these poor people are either dead or dying in the snow. And then John just goes into nurse mode and is trying to help everybody. When he leans down on that black man that's already dead, that's Crispus Attucks. Oh, wow. Have you ever heard of Crispus Attucks? I I have. There's a school named for him here in Indianapolis. There sure is. Absolutely. He was one of the first people to die in the Boston Massacre. Oh, wow. As a matter of fact, this is one of the first major cases of police brutality in America. Crispus Attucks, a black man, was the first man to die. Yikes. I know. This event is what sparks the American Revolution when you really think about it. Obviously, you'd had stuff like the Albany Congress in the 1750s and, of course, the French and Indian War, which caused all of the expenses to have people taxed more heavily in the 1760s and 70s. And then you had the Stamp Act. People had to start paying huge amount of duties on postage. Yeah, I remember that. It was just unreasonable. I don't remember that. I wasn't alive. I mean, I remember learning about it in school. Also in the square, shouting at the British, calling them murderers, is Sam Adams. Murderers! Come away. Come away, Sam! Shoot me too, Preston. If you Sam! Sam, come away! You'll suffer the full penalty of the law! Sam! These people need to attend to Oh, Sam is, oh, Sam is fired up. Sam was way more famous before his cousin John. Yeah. Hardly anyone knew who John Adams was at this time. Because Sam was part of the Sons of Liberty. Mm-hmm. He was already very fuck the British before <laughs> John ever was. John believed in the law. He believed on being on the side of truth and on the side of the law. And um, he didn't think very highly of his very rebel-rousing cousin, Sam Adams. The next day, a man shows up at John's house, basically begging John to represent the British soldiers who were jailed as a result of the Boston Massacre. He interrupted a school lesson. Yeah. Because you went to school with your parents back then if you didn't go to a schoolhouse. Your parents were teachers. Abigail Adams being an educated woman and able to homeschool her children. Invaluable. Invaluable. She's teaching them Latin. (laughs) Which, you know, we have a different opinion on that now, but (laughs) it's good to know. When Abigail opens the door. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? It's nothing, sir. I'm known to be a friend of the soldiers here. What is your business, sir? I'm here to ask you to help a man. Captain Preston. No one else would play this case. And the way John and Abigail look at each other like, uh... Do we really want to get involved in this? Uh, yeah, No, Abby is not cool with this from the jump. Don't bring the shit in my house. Yeah, for like... real. <laughs> She's like, do not go see those men because the moment you see them, you'll want to defend them because that's just the kind of dude you are. Can I do to go and see this soldier? I have. How? Because you will find a way to believe him. He may be telling the truth. All your clients tell the truth, John Adams. But your prospective client is the most despised man in Boston. <sighs> By the time the news of last night's events spread, I have no doubt he will be the most despised man in all of Massachusetts. But John's point is that if this is going to be a free nation, then even men like those redcoats, 
deserve competent counsel when they go on trial. Abby's like, I'm telling you, this will end poorly for you. <laughs> but go ahead and do what you're going to do because you always do. Don't listen to me. I love Abigail. Oh, my God. We cut to this prison yard by the harbor where the soldiers from the Boston Massacre are being held. John is there to be like, hey, what's the veracity? I heard no one else would talk to you. And Captain Preston is adamant that he did not order his soldiers to fire on that crowd. He said he was standing in front of his men. It would have been lunacy to order them to fire with him standing in front of them. Exactly. Look, I gave no order to fire, sir. I swear, I was standing in front of the man. It was talking to a, a big fella. He had a club, and I think they call him Palms. That some of your soldiers did fire, Captain Preston. As of this morning, five are dead, men and boys. And the thing is, he just knows that obviously everyone in Boston hates the British. We're a symbol of imperialist swill, of Tory swill, of loyalist swill. No one's going to listen to us. My men acted in self-defense. God will be my only judge. Yeah, I mean, listen, in these times, it's so tricky to know who's right or wrong here. Honestly, because they are the oppressors, the Redcoats. But he is adamant that they were being abused, physically abused by the crowd. Like, not just with snowballs and name-calling, with cudgels. Yes, with clubs and ropes and ice-hard, sharp, pointy oyster shells. It was not a nothing burger, that's for sure. Then we cut to this just wrenching sequence of this funeral march down Main Street in Boston. And it's going right by, it goes right by the Adams's house and they're standing outside watching it go by as they carry all of these bodies into the church across the street. And Sam Adams walks right out of the crowd. Oh, he's big mad. You have much of a case, John. Do I not? No Boston jury will ever vote for acquittal. Uh, thank you for your kind advice, Sam. This is not a time for showing how clever you are, cousin. This is a time for choosing sides. This is where the trope of, for God's sake, John, sit down. Yeah, first no. First comes into play. There's a musical called 1776, and there's literally a song in it called, for God's sake, John, sit down. <laughs> sit down, John. Sit down, John. Oh, Sit down, John. That means in Hamilton... He makes a reference to it. It's a callback. Sit, Sit down, down, John, you fat motherfucker. motherfucker. Yeah. I love it. I intend to prove this colony is governed by law. John. Whatever you and your sons of liberty may say on the matter. John. We're all sons of liberty here. John's trying to remain very objective. He's like, this is not a case about whether or not the British are oppressing us by taxing us without representation. This case is about what happened in that square on that day and whether or not those redcoats fired first or not. 
This is where we start getting into the actual trial. Yes, of the Boston Massacre. In reality, this is shown as being, this is being portrayed as having happened like right after the massacre. There was actually months and months before, the, it didn't, the trial didn't happen until the end of 1770. Yeah, that's the way it happens on Law and Order too. Like we cut to the trial immediately after the guy's been arrested. For the prosecution is Robert Treat Payne, who will eventually become part of Adams's team in the yeah. Continental Congress. <laughs> That's crazy. And of course, we have John Adams at the bar for the prisoners. What's fun about this scene is that obviously because we're still under the yoke of British rule, everybody's dressed up for court. And I don't mean looking nice. I mean, we have long robes, itchy white wigs. Everybody's got powder on their shoulders. The red bands they're wearing, the that the attorneys are wearing around their necks, those are the Harvard colors. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, you really dressed up. His ridiculous white wig <laughs> that he's required to wear as an officer of court. The colossal portrait of King George III overlooking the entire courtroom. That's ominous. Yeah, it's, it's, it's giving North Korea energy. Ah! But then again... I walk into my state government office every day and there's a colossal portrait of Governor Eric Holcomb mm. over the atrium. So we haven't changed much. Yeah, let's keep our eyes on our own paper, shall we? First testifying rather cheekily here is cheekily. Citizen Robert Goddard. He's played by Boris McGiver. Boris McGiver is in House of Cards. I knew you were going to bring this He's up. He's Tom Hammerschmidt. Yes, he is. In House of Cards. The newspaper editor. And how would you describe the behavior of these... Young lads, just before the soldiers fired. Throwing snowballs. <laughs> ah, snowballs. Wow. A terrifying prospect for armed soldiers, snowballs. Seems very dramatic, Mr. Goddard. Almost as if you wrote it yourself. And like, John gets over to him to cross-examine him. And he's like trying to pinpoint where he's saying the captain was standing. He stood behind his men, sir. Then we cut to a man who, I don't know his first name. They call him Holmes. Yeah, Mr. Holmes. Who is an African man who was probably brought to the colonies in slavery, but then attained his freedom. There is no institutionalized slavery in the northern states or in the northern colonies, such as Massachusetts. The air quote industry in Massachusetts doesn't really call for it. A lot of farm work in New England is done by hired hand. It's not done on the same scale that it is in the southern states, which have these huge plantations. There's not as much of a need for slavery in the northern colonies, right? Mm. Yeah, but Holmes is actually here testifying as he was witness too. And the way, first of all, every member of the gallery does not want this to go in favor of the British soldiers. Oh, absolutely not. Everyone in Boston is piping mad at this extreme use of force against their citizens. Because the court's trying to make it about the facts of the case, and they want it to be about the fact that the Redcoats are tyrannical oppressors. Exactly. The way that they are closing in behind Holmes. They're all, these white men are all standing around him, staring him down, wanting to say things that will incriminate the soldiers. It's Holmes that tells him about what the people were doing to the British soldiers, throwing the ice and the oyster shells. And John even asks him himself if he partook. And Holmes is like, yes, sir. Yes, I did. He's like, so they were throwing ice and oyster shells. Were they throwing anything else? And that's when he like wants to shut up. 
And and then he just finally gives up and he's like, okay, this crowd, they were making a lot of noise, right? They were shouting. What were they shouting at the soldiers? And Holmes, like, doesn't want to say because they're literally closing in behind him. Yeah. The people that took part in this riot. Please, Mr. Holmes. What did you hear them say? Did you take this to be the cry of fire or bidding these soldiers to fire? No, they meant for the soldiers to shoot, sir. You say that this crowd actually dared the soldiers to fire. Mr. Holmes testifies that the crowd was egging the soldiers on. Like, I dare you to shoot us. Granted, that is never a reason to. No. But that doesn't look good for them. No, it, like they're like, give me a reason. Come on, just give me a reason to beat your red coat ass bloody with this club. Out of court one day, we see John walking through the streets of Boston. I love it in the making of John Adams when they show us just how complicated these long shots of Boston are. Oh, my God. Because they're about on a set that's only about an acre. But the way they're able to animate Boston Harbor behind him is just insane to me. No, yeah, like you'll see these sets on behind the scenes footage and like they've all got a very large green banner across the top so that they can go back in and post and animate in the environment. He's going down to the harbor where a man named Palms, Richard Palms, is working. He's he's a rope maker and a lot of the rope is made down by the harbor. That's where the rope is needed the most. <laughs> this, this makes sense. And he gets he gets up to Mr. Palms who really probably supports the mob more than the British. And he's like, listen, I heard that you were talking to Captain Preston right before this happened. I need you to come and testify. And Palms is like, get out of here, man. No, he's the definition of a reluctant witness. If British soldiers fired on a defenseless crowd without provocation, I will be the first to want to see them hanged for it. But suppose they are innocent. I do not wish to see innocent men die in my name. Do you? But when his name is called in court the next day, he does step up. Richard Palms drops his big boy balls on the table and shows up to court the next day. And here's the thing, guys. Palms' testimony directly contradicts Goddard's testimony, the first man, the white man that testified. So you are prepared to swear he was standing in front of his men? Not behind them, as Mr. Goddard told us. And when did you hear the command to fire? After the first shot went off. Could you swear that Captain Preston did not shout that command? I could not. And John looks at him, like, confused, like... Wait a minute. And then he runs over to Captain Preston and he goes, Captain Preston, are you willing to swear that you were standing in front of and not behind your men? Captain Preston says it's while he's talking to Palms that the first shot was fired. Yeah. And Palms testifies that the British soldiers did not fire until the first shot had rung out. Which man fired, Captain? It was Private Hugh Montgomery that fired first because he received a blow with a club to the head and he fell down and the musket went off. Yeah, because you, when you hear that, you think, 
oh, that means somebody from the crowd shot. No, that's not the case at all. And after the first shot went off, the crowd moved forward and started really attacking all of them. Yeah. And Preston says he was telling them not to fire. Even though they were being mobbed. And, but they heard voices from an alleyway behind them shouting, damn your bloods, why don't you fire? And the rest of the soldiers thought that that could have been the captain. So they opened fire. Yeah. Oh my God. It was it was a mess from beginning to end. And I love John. That's when he swings his cape around. <laughs> That's when he swings his rope around and goes, if I may recall the evidence of Robert Goddard. <laughs> it's like, he's like, aha. I heard the voice of Captain Preston say, damn your bloods. And then he gave the order to fire. So guys. I rest my case, says John Adams. <laughs> He's like, Mike, drop. Adam's out. We go back to the house. Abigail's ready for bed. John is pacing back and forth. And Abigail would often read a lot of John's work before he had it published. This is his closing argument. She's reading his, she's she's going over his closing arguments for him. And like he's pacing back and forth, like wondering what she's going to say about it. I love this. Be still. Help me to finish. You did not like it. I did not say that. Oh, you did not have to. John, there's not a person in Boston who doubts your education, your command of language. Oh, you are charming me, Abigail. You never charm me. Unless what you're about to say is cutting. And she basically tells him, listen, it's a little vain. (laughs) Yeah, you're being (laughs) a little self-important here, John. That was one of people's chief criticisms of John Adams throughout his entire life. Sit down, John. Is that he could be a little vain sometimes. You have overburdened your argument with ostentatious erudition. You You do do not not need to to quote quote great men men to show show that you are one. one. I love that so much. (laughs) And John's like, listen, you don't understand. I'm trying to make clear to people that great men throughout history have been able to agree on certain basic principles because I'm trying to reduce the mob mentality belief behind this case into the true facts and evidence. He's taking the emotion out of it. Exactly. And I love how he's listening to her and he's taking her at her word. He is taking her advice. And he's like, all right, well, I've got work to do. And he closes the curtains on that bed and he goes... Would you have me lose all the quotations? John. Can I just use one quote? <laughs> is that cool? And here we are at closing arguments, folks. Oh, God. This is, this, is, this is his first great moment in this series. I love that Abigail is in the top gallery. She yeah. came to watch. She doesn't usually come to watch, but she came to watch today. I'm kind of surprised she was allowed in, given the sexism of the time. I know. There are women in there. Yeah. They're just not allowed to speak. Robert Payne is like, listen, malice was very much on these prisoners' minds, and I demand that you pronounce them guilty. Yeah, he's all fire and brimstone about the (laughs) fact that those soldiers had choices, and they did not have to fire into that crowd. No person, he says, no person can justify killing by means of their escape. Yeah. And he says, is there such a thing as voluntary manslaughter? Which... There is, actually, in this country now, Mr. Payne. Then John gets up there, and he's like, listen, they're redcoats. I get it. They suck. But we legally cannot hold that against them in this matter. He does get his one quotation in. (laughs) Yeah, he does. He kept in one quotation. In the words of the 
Marquis of Beccaria, if by supporting the rights of mankind, I shall save from the agonies of death one unfortunate victim of tyranny or of ignorance equally fatal. His blessings will be sufficient consolation to me for the contempt of all mankind. That is John Adams in a nutshell. If I'm going to save even one person from tyranny, I don't care what people say about me. For real. He says, when people are taxed without representation, yeah, they are sometimes to feel abused and may even sometimes rebel. But we must take care. We have to differentiate the specifics here. Like, we can't just devolve into this mob mentality, even though we feel abused. We have to do it right, we have to do it by the law, and everyone deserves a due process. Yeah, justice is supposed to be blind, devoid of emotion, all that fun stuff. Lest we be borne away by a torrent of passion. He's, he's, he's saying that you need to look at these soldiers as men. You need to humanize them. Because they were being attacked too. They didn't attack anyone until they themselves were attacked. Soldiers so assaulted may defend themselves to the death. Now the people are crying. Kill them! Kill them! Knock them down! Disregard these uniforms. Consider the men who wear them. Consider yourselves in such a situation and judge if a reasonable man would not fear for his life. Obviously... It's never an excuse to murder someone. Har harassment is never an excuse to murder someone unless they are trying to murder you. And I completely understand and identify with the rioters. Yeah. I really do. The evil yoke of oppression needed to be overthrown. But, but these men were literally just doing their jobs. Yeah. I know they're a part of an oppressive system and should not be respected for that. They weren't doing anything to hurt those people in the moment. No. And that's when John goes right up to the jury, leans on the banister and goes, Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And I'm like, you're so right, John. You're so right. And that's what I think about constantly as we try to navigate cases of injustice in the now. Yeah. We are living in an extreme version of what they were living in at the time today. It only got worse. It only got worse. And oh, the, the closing quote of this series, literally the last line of this series will be so prevalent to that thought specifically. And I can't wait to get there. There will be a lot of pins I tell you to put <laughs> throughout this coverage and we'll all talk about it at the end. It'll be great. Y'all got a notebook and a pen? <laughs> There will be a test at the end. So we're back in court again. The jury has deliberated. And guys, we know how this goes. The jury returns a verdict of not guilty for Preston and his men. We, the jury, find the accused, Captain Thomas Preston, not guilty. Everybody is pissed. Yup. You know who's not so pissed? Sam Adams. Yeah, he's just kind of like, well, damn, my he, cousin was right. He had kind of a good point. He did that rather artfully, didn't he? <laughs> God damn it. There be no further business before the court. I hereby declare this session adjourned. I love how John comes home to Abby and, like, he's he's faking her <laughs> he's out. He's faking her out. He's looking all solemn and sad like he lost. I have done it, Mrs. Adams. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> 
There will be no living with you at all now, I suppose. I love it because she was so against this in the beginning. She's like, oh my God, holy shit. And then it's like sweet relief to her. She's like, oh my God. Now that he successfully defended these British soldiers, the Sons of Liberty are really interested in his support for their cause. Because they realize this is a man who lives in the truth. Yeah, he is looked at now in the community as a symbol of impartiality. He's unencumbered by the politics. Yeah. And they think that's extremely valuable. So we We've got this scene where he's meeting with Sam Adams, Robert Treat Payne, his <laughs> most recent adversary, and Elbridge Gerry, who was also a Massachusetts legislator at the time. Why not stand for election on the Massachusetts Council? I have no talent for politics. I'm by nature far too independent-minded. Besides, I, I hardly think that my name will add luster to your cause at this time. I am by nature far too independent-minded. It couldn't possibly be me, gentlemen. Yeah, his response is pretty much like, no, I'm too old and tired for this shit. Like, already! It's pain that pipes up and goes, listen, this shit is only gonna get worse. We need men like you with us so that we can create an actual change. They've taxed our glass, our paper, our paint. Yeah. Even our playing cards and dice. It's impossible to live because of all the money you have to give to the government. Because what they want to do is they want to form an assembly between members of not only Massachusetts, but all the colonies. It's pain that goes, we're required to import British goods and then be expected to pay for the privilege. Like, that's just not right. Mm -hmm. John's getting really popular because it's not just the Sons of Liberty who want him. John and Abigail are having dinner with the Sewells, the attorney general and his wife. And Sewell tells him that the governor has taken even more notice of him and that the position of advocate general in the Royal Court of Admiralty is being afforded to him, being offered to him. Yeah, the Royal Court of Admiralty, you know, King George. Like the like the Attorney General would be the people's representative in the justice system. Uh-huh. The Advocate General is the monarch's representative. And that's what's going to become so wild for John is that he's always believed <laughs> in the law. But, like, here's the thing. That law is instituted and held up by their oppressors. I love it when Mrs. Sewell's like, congratulations, John. The blank stare that Abigail gives him. It's no secret, John, that your practice has fallen off since the trial. For the most part, that uh, that is the case. This would be an entree to the most profitable business in the colony. What do you say, my friend? And he just is silent, thinking about it. (laughs) Abigail. You do not speak, John. Qui tacit consentire? Qui tacit consentire translate to he who is silent consents. Uh, yeah! (laughs) I love her so much! The way she's just cutting up her meat. Do you want to fucking do that? I don't think you want to do that. Be wise. Be wise. (laughs) They're in bed later that night. This is my favorite thing. They're in bed and she's half asleep laying on his chest and he is still talking. (laughs) She's got her fingers over his mouth. He literally goes, my father was a shoemaker. My mother could not read. And she puts her fingers over his lips like, shh, please. I have to be up at four in the morning. Yeah, I literally have to be up at dawn. To scrub your house and feed your children. (laughs) Be quiet. (laughs) And you know, his parents were rather simple people. But his mother 
The reason he says that she cannot read, it doesn't, we don't really know if Susanna Adams was illiterate or not, but as far as we know, there's no surviving letters that she ever wrote. There's not even a picture that exists of her, a portrait. That's sad. I know. And I mean, I get it. Getting a portrait done of yourself was kind of a posh thing. If you had money, you could get a portrait done of you. But like, I've always read about Susanna Adams as being a very belligerent woman because she came from status, but she never was afforded an education. Well, then what the hell is the point? And John saw that resentment in her his entire life and did his best to make sure that the family he created would be a learned one. Oh, that's nice. Which is an improvement he was able to make. This next sequence, traumatizing. Oh, God, guys, uh, trigger warning. This is horrible. So... There is a shipment coming into Boston Harbor on a ship that was owned by John Hancock. And this is where John Hancock makes his first appearance. You will not blast this cargo, gentlemen. This is legitimate cargo. Tea from the East India Company that you are bound by law to unload. What's legitimate about it, friend? No other tea is allowed in Boston Harbor. Either we drink the king's foul brew or nothing at all. And who may you be, sir? John Hancock, ship owner. Not... John Hancock, smuggler. Watch your word, sir. Oh, he didn't like that. Oh, no, he did not. Oh, he didn't like that. He basically goes, I'm an honest man being strangled by Monopoly. And there's this crowd forming around the ship. They've all got ropes and bats. And like, another mob is ready to take on this loyalist fuck, the collector of the Port of Boston. And it's it's Sam who's with John. And they walk up to where this is happening, and it's Sam that kind of starts everything by going, Shame on you, sir! John Hancock that goes, Ta the bastard! Oh no! And then they just start screaming, Ta him! Ta him! Ta him! Oh, this is so bad! I don't care how loyal this man is to the British crown. He did not deserve what these people then proceed to do to him. And, and I mean, guys, you know, asterisk, white men were obviously not the biggest target of tarring and feathering that occurred in this point in history. Remember when we talked about the Patriot? We talked about how their depiction of British brutality was a little extreme yeah. and a little over the top, that the British really didn't do things like lock people in a church and burn it down. Yeah. People didn't really do this to this extent. This is a dramatic portrayal. It did happen. There were loyalists who were tarred and feathered, but the way they depict it here is like that this became a common practice. And it really wasn't, but... Yeah, they, they would tar and feather people. Mostly it happened to black men. Yes, that was my point. If a slave was brought to Boston to be sold and tried to escape, they would tar and feather him. And there's actually a slave auction going on while this scene is happening. It's gross! And, like, these, these slaves are, well, these potential slaves, are watching this happen just with wide eyes. It's like, better not step out of line because they do this to each other. Oh, God! Not just us. The sizzle when the tar hits that man's skin. I don't know. 
know how they did this from a practical standpoint because the tar looks really real. It really looks like it's boiling in the container it's in. Yeah. And you're right. They just crown him. They strip him naked and tar him and put all these chicken feathers all over him. They put him on a mast and carry him around town to shame him. That's so ugly. And the way John gets in Sam's face. Do you approve of this? People are hurt when they fight for what is rightfully theirs. Do you approve a brutal and illegal act to enforce a political principle, Sam? Answer me that, can you? And the way Sam looks a little like, uh oh, <laughs> my cousin was right again. Oh, I'm no. acting a little gross. Oh. We're hurting people in the course of our cause. I have, and we're suspending the local government. This is the institution of the intolerable acts. Yeah. That's what the colonists called them. They were officially called the coercive acts. Okay. Legally, four separate acts that mandated the Boston Harbor be closed and they will no longer receive any other goods than the what the British tell them they will receive. They're not allowed to do commerce with any other colony or country, only with their mother country, Great Britain. General Thomas Gage is being dispatched with several regiments of the British Army to compel compliance with these new acts. They're being occupied by their imperialist oppressors. They are being required to quarter their troops among the citizenry People are being thrown out of their houses. Yeah. Because there's not enough room to hold all of these soldiers. We get John and Sam on another walk. I want to talk about this shot because this was a mistake. It was? John and Sam walk behind this big net in front of the harbor. <laughs> oh, and yeah. And the cameraman didn't quite notice what he was doing, and they just kept it. He was like, oh, whatever. They walked behind something. They appeared right on the other side. It's fine. But then what the special effects artists had to do, because Boston Harbor behind them is not real. It's a green screen. It's a green screen. And so... <gasps> oh, I know what you're about to say. The animators had to go in and animate every little piece of background of the harbor in between the mesh of the net. Oh, guys, say a prayer for those special effects artists. This is where Sam first tells him about the Continental Congress. The Congress will be meeting in Philadelphia to determine how to recover our rights and liberties. I've nominated you to represent Massachusetts. Does this Congress have any legal authority? Since all assemblies have been outlawed, I cannot imagine that it does, Sam. I repeat, does this Congress have any legal authority? This is where John's like, okay, does the Congress have any legal authority? <laughs> Sam literally starts walking away from him. <laughs> he won't answer the question. Since all present councils have been disbanded, I don't imagine that it does. He Sam. Doesn't, he doesn't understand. He, does, he, he knows that he's going to get carted off to like another rebel rousing meeting. Yeah. And like Sam's not being transparent with him. And John is getting fussier and fussier because he feels like he did right by those soldiers, but he also realizes that England is acting up, and this is no longer acceptable. He's having another little conversation with Jonathan Sewell, the attorney general, and Sewell's like, listen, Massachusetts, I know that these new pieces of legislation are whack, but Massachusetts is in a state of open rebellion, and the courts of this colony can no longer be trusted to deliver justice. I'll say. 
say. The attorney general is saying this yeah, to John. You know it's a big damn deal when that happens. This is where John and Sewell's friendship takes a downward spiral. I think Sewell's rejection that things need to change are the last indicators that John should be a part of this new movement. Mm-hmm. However toxic he may view the movement with their acts of violence, he still thinks it's an important time to get involved now. I staked my reputation and the security of my family in a case that will now be tried in England because he is an English officer? Are we considered too young, too unprincipled to understand justice? The crown has ruled, John. The only reasonable course left is obedience, and you do well to remember that and act accordingly, old friend. And then John's just like, bangs his stick. They all have sticks. <laughs> all these men have walking sticks. Why? <laughs> it's like a weapon. I know. It's like if someone starts attacking you, thank God I had this stick I used to walk around with so I can beat you off. Remember, beat you off? <laughs> <laughs> Stop! <laughs> Stop! Oh my God. No, remember that time when a representative was actually caned on the Senate floor or whatever? Charles Sumner. Yeah. In 1855. (laughs) The caning of Charles Sumner. (laughs) Canes were banned from Congress after that. The first time anyone tried to assassinate a president was in 1835. Andrew Jackson, he was walking down the steps of the Capitol and some man pulled two revolvers on him and he literally took his cane and beat that man half to death before he could (laughs) shoot him. American history is chaotic. I love this little moment where John is working in the middle of the night when you had to work by candlelight. Oh, God. No other light, just a candle. And God help you if you were hard of seeing, you you know what I mean? You have to write all that shit down. And he he was. He was hard of seeing, too. He didn't even get glasses until he went to Europe. Like, (laughs) they didn't have glasses in the colonies. And I, but I love this little moment where he's working by candlelight and Abigail's coming downstairs in the night. She's like, where's my husband? Why is he not in bed with me? I know what he's doing. Take he, a break. He's, <laughs> he, just this cute little moment with the piano in the background. Like he's working and he just looks like, oh, fuck, I'm scared about the leap I'm about to take. He's writing his address for the assembly they're going to have to nominate the delegates for the Congress. Yeah. And she just like, leans on him and she's holding up a piece of paper into the light so that he can copy off of it. Yeah. They're so sweet. Now we're at the old Puritan meeting house. The fact that you knew the name of the building, I literally just have cut to church. Now this whole scene is dramatic license. This scene did not actually happen. Sam Adams is addressing everybody because this is the only way they can assemble now. Yeah. Is in churches. They can't go to the meeting house or the state house. Sanctuary! And, and have a meeting like this or else they'll They'll be imprisoned for it. Exactly. I can't. The First Amendment, right? Exactly. Exactly. He says, okay, we're sending five men. John Hancock, myself, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Gary, and I want to introduce you to our newest delegate. I give you now a new delegate from Massachusetts. A man whose prudence and probity are well known to you all. Mr. John Adams. Scattered quiet applause. Because <laughs> John's not, I mean, John is well known now, but everyone's still a little skeptical of him. He's like, oh, this is the, this is that damn man that defended the soldiers. Let's see what he fucking has to say. And John gives this amazing speech about how they're going to go forward. Yeah. I love this quote. 
John gets up there and he says, Liberty was not built on the doctrine that a few nobles may inherit the earth. Perfect. Right? It's perfect. We're still dealing with that today. But John, thanks for saying it, I guess. Like the, the big banner the people have in the gallery that says join or die. It's so cool. It stands on this principle that the meanest and lowest of the people are, by the unalterable, indefeasible laws of God and nature, as well entitled to the benefit of the air to breathe, light to see, food to eat, and clothes to wear as the nobles or the king. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. Everybody jumped to their feet. (laughs) Everybody loved that. It reminded me of that Family Guy bit where Lois is running for city council (laughs) and she gets up to the podium and goes, 9-11 was bad. And everyone starts cheering. (laughs) And liberty will ring in America. And John sits back down while everyone's still applauding and they start singing some old hymn. And Abigail is big proud and she's like, they've chosen their delegate well, have they? And this was another thing about John Adams. Oh, that's, I have a note about this. The man could not feel pride. Yeah. Like, he always talked about his duty and his honor, but could never feel any of the pride in it. Isn't that what I'm always saying about my own issues with pride? Yeah, because you're like, that's what I'm supposed to do. Why should I feel proud about that? I'm supposed to succeed, you know? And yeah, he sits back down in that pew next to Abigail, and he's basically like, we're all crazy. We're absolutely nuts for doing this. He's like, do you think we're going to be taken seriously at a, you know, national level? I feel we know what we do, Abigail. Men know not what to do, John. They ought not to do. They know not what. What? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense to me. It makes him giggle, too. (laughs) We fear them not. We trust in God. We see John packing. Yeah. It's time for him to go to Philadelphia to attend the First Continental Congress. This is my last note for this episode. And guys, this is the beginning of my rage on Abigail's behalf. Abigail is newly pregnant. You can see she's pregnant with the next child. And I'm like, now John is leaving his pregnant wife home alone. In the middle of a new budding revolution. With their three children so he can go off and be part of this Congress. And she's so emotional. She's worried that she hasn't packed his favorite waistcoat. God, Abby, (laughs) I love you. No, hold on. When they are packing and she's like holding up a pair of his pants, she's like, are these the proper pants for a great delegate of the Continental Congress of America? A delegate's britches are one of his most important tools, says John. (laughs) And she's like, why is that? Because the art of politics is applying the seat of the britches to the seat of the chair, (laughs) says Abigail. And outside comes rolling up this huge procession with, like, provincial militiamen, this huge ornate carriage, and who pops out of it but Sam Adams. All again, from the Sons of Liberty. God help us. Now, my old horse will suit me just fine, Sam. A plain horse for plain John Adams. <laughs> I love Abigail. God help us. <laughs> a plain horse for a plain John Adams. And like, he gets up on his horse and he looks down at the kids and he goes, bye my little pumpkins. Aww. John, you remember what I said about taking care of your mother and everybody else because you're going to be the man while I'm gone. This kid 
John Quincy Adams in 1774 would have been seven years old. Oh, man. I know. He gets on that horse and goes, forgive me, Abigail. For what, John? She was way too magnanimous for way too long with this man. I get it. She loves him. She knows he's going to go do important things. But you know what, Abby? Someone ought to feel angry on your behalf for what you'll go through, and I volunteer as tribute. (laughs) I am going to be the Abby cheerleader for the rest of this series. Forgive me, Abigail. For what, John? Bye, you little pumpkins. John, you remember what I said. To Philadelphia! All these men on horses following John and the procession out of the city because he didn't get in that carriage. Yeah. He's on his own horse. And they've got, like, the, the procession has got those two big flags, the big join or die one with the snake and all the colonies on it. They already had a flag. Yeah, baby. And, and then I also just, lo- I love, I just love the sight of the appeal to heaven flag. Yeah. Like, reckon with your God before acting. Like For real. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. And as the procession is leaving the street, British soldiers are marching in. Oh, boy. And then you just see Abigail go to the children. And then, like, the last shot of the episode is her holding her stomach while she struggles up the stairs. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. Guys, that's it. Fade to credits. <laughs> yeah, guys, that was the first episode of John Adams. Guys, it's it's heating up. Yeah. It's heating up. Oh, we've got a much longer episode to talk about next week. <laughs> Guys, next week we're going to be covering part two of John Adams, which is entitled Independence. Oh, guys. Can't wait to talk about this one with you. This is the declaration. We are getting down to paperwork. Like, it's going to be great. I'd like to instill a little segment here at the end called Checking In with John. Oh, okay. We're going to check in with John's character here a little bit. John has been recognized as someone who is going to fight for the truth no matter what. And what these people, these oppressed people, they are white people. Yeah. With with a dependency on a very prosperous empire and crown. And there are many people, non-white people mostly, who are suffering below them. But it's becoming a self-determination story. And you know how I love a self-determination story. Absolutely. And this is where John is being recognized for who he truly is. And this this support that he now has from his neighbors and the public is going to just propel him forward. The power of the people, baby. The power of the people compels you. <laughs> so guys, next week, be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, if for some reason you haven't already, please go follow us on Twitter. Yeah, at Kick and Stream, K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. Don't forget, guys, if you've hit the bottom of your Patreon and your main feed content, you know, the main feed deletes so many episodes, you know, there's only allowed to be 100 on there. So if you want to find the full catalog of our episodes, remember to check out Podbean. Mm-hmm. That's where they all live full time. And guys, we'll see you next week. Guys, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for paying for the content. Thanks for listening to us. I'm enjoying long form so far. Carrie Ann McMichael. Yeah? I full named you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Take my hands. 
thank you so much for what you're about to do for me. I know. This is going to be, you are giving me truly a wonderful gift. And I, I want you to know how much I appreciate it, okay? By editing all of this and doing all the work you're going to do for it. I love you and I appreciate you very much. Thank you very much. I love you and your little nerdy brain. Aw, thank you. More quality content coming to you from Kicking and Streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, sorry, sorry mom. mom.